listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 220. Today, we're talking about worker centers. In the wake of the union loss at Amazon's Bessemer facility, we revisit other ways that workers have organized besides NLRB elections and consider the pluses and minuses of organizing as workers, but not in a union. But first, the news. There are a lot of ongoing stories in labor right now that have gotten kind of short shrift in recent weeks due to the overwhelming interest in the Amazon election. One of those stories that I have been following, I swear, um, and mentioned in a recent episode is the ongoing strike at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, or as people from Massachusetts like me say, Worcester. Nurses with the Massachusetts Nurses Association have been out on strike for seven weeks now, and I called up one of those striking nurses to find out what's going on. My name is Marie Ritacco. I'm an RN, and I work at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, uh, and I'm on the negotiating team for our union. So you all have been on strike for seven weeks now, which is is pretty unheard of. And our listeners are probably at least somewhat familiar with what's going on. But can you tell us sort of what are the underlying issues that brought you to this point? Of course. Um, well, the the only reason that we're out on the street right now is because patient safety in that building has been lacking for some time now. You know, we have been at the negotiating table with the hospital for about two years. Um, And once the pandemic hit, of course, we had to take a pause um, and, um, you know, take care of business inside. Um, And uh, we did that and realized that we didn't think conditions could get worse. But, you know, as you can imagine, during the pandemic, they did. And uh, once things settled down, we had continued negotiating, and it became quite clear that they had no intention of discussing uh, our clear staffing needs. And in fact, you know, we practiced in a way that was even much more difficult than prior to the pandemic. And we kind of got the impression, and we were right, that they wanted to continue pandemic-type nursing, Mm -hmm. which was having patients on our, you know, medical surgical floors that really belonged in the ICU. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they they um, kind of thought that they had, um, you know, come to a place where we were so broken down that we weren't going to uh, continue fighting for what we know is safe and appropriate. And uh, what was happening inside that building was anything but. Yeah. Um, so they just did not take us seriously. I don't think they anticipated that we... Um, would have the solidarity to do this. Uh, But, you know, the overwhelming majority of nurses said we need to be out on the street if they do not want to improve conditions at the bedside. So it's purely about patient safety. Um, You know, that is the issue that has brought us to the street. Yeah, I think... One of the things that that I often see happening in in not just nursing, but certainly especially in nursing, is the management takes advantage of your care and concern for patients to just make conditions Mm -hmm. continually worse. Yes. And they certainly did that. You know, from the very beginning of the pandemic, we had to fight for the appropriate uh, personal protective equipment, Mm -hmm. the PPE. Um, And they held it under lock and key. 
You know, they said that they had sufficient N95s, but it became very clear that they did not. Um, They were not transparent with their um, efforts to source materials. Um, Our own union actually um, spent thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to Mm -hmm. try and source PPE for nurses at the bedside. Um, and so that's what we did. We, you know, we had to reuse masks. We had to reuse gowns that are all meant for single use. Yeah. Um, you know, while they continued at certain points to do elective procedures and use protective equipment that mm-hmm. we should have had readily available to us at the bedside. Okay. So, you know, their, their tactics are just, um, uh, their, their one goal is to make as much money as possible, no matter what the collateral damage is. And that damage is nurses getting sick. In fact, patients coming into the hospital who are COVID negative becoming COVID positive because Mm -hmm. they were not cohorting COVID positive patients. Nurses would have mixed assignments. So just very um, treacherous practices that needed to be exposed. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about Tenet, the company behind the hospital. Well, Tenet is a multi-billion-dollar for-profit entity, you know, um, and their goal is simply to make money. It is not to provide the most appropriate care at all times. Um, in fact, in during the first surge of the pandemic, uh, when they received almost three billion dollars from the federal government in CARES Act money, yeah. they actually furloughed nurses, bullied them into going home instead of being at the bedside Mm. in areas where they normally did elective procedures like Mm -hmm. the operating room or the GI lab or the cath lab. So instead of redeploying these nurses to areas where their skill was needed to help give hands-on care to patients and respite for nurses working in these areas, they forced them to go home. Um, and, you know, they bragged to their shareholders that this is a method that they were using to essentially strengthen their cash position. Um, in fact, when we took our um, strike authorization vote on that very day, yeah. uh, they announced that they had made over $414 million in profit in the previous year. So you've been out for seven weeks now. Um, tell us about yeah. that. What's it been like? I mean, it's cold again today. So I assume it's been kind of chilly mm-hmm. on the picket line for quite a while, but like, what's the, yeah. what's the sort of feeling? Um, how do you, you know, how do you feel like the community's responded? Yeah. What's it been like being out for this long? We have enjoyed tremendous support, <clears throat> not only from the majority of nurses that are out with us, almost 750 nurses, I believe, um, from our families, from the community, from our, um, local legislators, Um, from our federal legislators. We've enjoyed tremendous support from our labor community, uh, from faith-based organizations. Um, You know, we had um, a wonderful uh, march the other day from City Hall in Worcester to the front of St. Vincent Hospital uh, by grassroots organizers in our community, moms and dads with their children. It was so heartwarming. I mean, they were there to support us um, and it was, you know, wonderful to see that the community really gets it. In general, the um, feeling on the line is one of pride. Um, we think that, in fact, we know that we are on the right side of this, yeah. and we know that we're doing it for our patients. We're trying to bring 
uh, St. Vincent Hospital back to its rich heritage to serve the poor and the needy in our community, to serve people that are um, at a time in their life when they are scared and when they need a nurse at their bedside. No nurse wants to have to choose between, you know, either going to the patient that's suffering chest pain and shortness of breath or the patient that's about to fall out of bed. But in general, the feeling on the line is one of overwhelming solidarity, um, absolute strength. Um, There is joy to be found in this experience. You can find it on the line. Um, It's wonderful to meet colleagues that you've never actually had a conversation with before Mm -hmm. because we are, you know, separated by our work areas. So that has only proven to strengthen our bargaining unit. Um, And and I think that's a wonderful aside to all of this, uh, that we realize how strong we really are. Uh, So it's been, you know, very uplifting and uh, exciting. And it's also been very exhausting. Um, But, you know, uh, good work and, um, you know, having a goal that you're working toward can be very exhausting, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, I understand. I was reading um, some information that that, um, David from the union sent me about Mm -hmm. how much the hospital is spending, not just on replacement nurses, but on police details. Yes, they are. They're spending uh, a little over $30,000 a day on police details. Um, They're spending money on surveillance cameras. You know, they're spending money on extra security inside the hospital. Um, they're spending about a million dollars a day uh, to try and prevent the nurses from uh, being successful in achieving what we know is absolutely necessary. You know, there's no turning back. Um, it, it, we know that this is the right fight at the right moment. Um, and, you know, we're, we're well on our way to a victory. And uh, we're going to wait them out as long as we have to. One day longer, one day stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit. I mean, again, I think, you know, our longtime listeners are familiar with fights over safe staffing levels, but for people who aren't, um, yeah, talk about like, what are the staffing demands that that you all have made? And, you know, give us a little bit of background on fights for staffing levels in nursing in, in general. Sure. You know, we achieved ratios in our contract over 20 years ago. And today those ratios are just not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, you know, we had some modifications of those staffing guidelines several years back, Mm -hmm. uh, one or two contracts back. Um, And if the hospital were to be honest, they would say that if they met the guidelines in a consistent manner, we would not be out on the street right now. Um, Unfortunately, they... Um, play with those guidelines. They Mm -hmm. game the system. They move patients around like pawns, like checkers on a board. And they will, it's nothing for them to send a nurse home at 3 a.m. if they deem that she has too few patients. Um, And they will take those remaining patients and spread spread them out amongst the staff that remain. Um, So what we're asking for is very simple and straightforward. Um, we're asking that no nurse on the med surge areas has any more than four patients at a time and that we go back to our um, prior staffing levels with regard to ancillary staff, meaning that we have enough nurses' aides and we have secretaries on every floor, on every shift. 
so without doing that, you know, we, we cannot keep nurses in that building because those conditions exist at the other two hospitals in the city. Yeah. Nurses generally have no more than four patients and they have ancillary staff to help them care for these patients, which is absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've definitely been tracking, um, you know, a rise in, in strikes and, and strike votes at hospitals around the country. Mm -hmm. So clearly the pandemic has shown us some things about the current way our healthcare system is operating. Absolutely. And uh, I think nurses around the country realize that, you know, as we had to lessen standards during the pandemic to survive that, that a lot of hospitals are getting the idea that maybe they can get away with that for the long term. And it is not going to be possible. We're not, you know, at St. Vincent Hospital, we decided we can't allow that. And I think a lot of nurses feel the same way. You know, we are tired. Um, we just want to do our jobs. We want to take care of patients, be proud of what we're doing, um, and let no call light go unanswered. People need a nurse at their bedside when they need it. Um, and they deserve that. And these corporations, like Tenet, can afford to do it. They've proven that. Yeah. If they took this seriously and negotiated with us at the table, they could have already paid for two or three years of the improvements that we're looking for. Right. So money is no object for them. They can they can do this. They simply are digging in and they do not want to do it, you know, and uh, they, they made the wrong calculation on this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those moments, right? The pandemic has made things worse in so many ways, but it also has brought this, you know, this conversation around essential workers, like a lot of gratitude from a lot of people towards healthcare workers. Um, and like, I just, I personally, like I, I went and got my second vaccine last week and was Great. just stunned by the fact that, you know, you could walk in and get your shot and not be billed and just, we can do this if we actually care right. to do it as a society. <laughs> Imagine that. It's we really can take stunning. care of people. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. can do it. And people need to start demanding, you know, um, that this is for the, the good of our communities, you know, and we deserve this. You know, the, the government uh, has, is very generous to big business. Um, we want hospitals that are robust and doing well, but we also want the workers inside those hospitals to have working conditions that are fair. And we need to demand, because after all, this is our money from the CARES Act mm -hmm. and the Recovery Act going to support these institutions um, so that they are not harmed by the pandemic. So we can't allow this to happen. This is our money that is getting filtered into these institutions. Mm -hmm. And we need to demand better. We deserve it. That was Marie Ritaco, member of the St. Vincent Nurses Negotiating Team and the Vice President of Mass Nurses Association. We will put more info on the strike up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. A couple of weeks ago, we brought you the news about a massive wave of strikes and protests sweeping across Myanmar in the wake of its military coup. Since then, there have been more killings of protesters, more arrests of dissidents, many of them members of the labor movement, and more outrage as the junta continues to crack down on opposition activists, including union leaders. One of them is Da Myo Ai, director of Solidarity Trade Union of Myanmar, or STUM. She was dragged out of her office and arrested by the junta last week and remains imprisoned as calls for her release go out around the world. 
Currently, according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, 737 people have been killed by the military so far, and more than 3,220 individuals have been detained or sentenced. I spoke with Bent Gert, Field Director for Southeast Asia at the Worker Rights Consortium, about what Daumyo Ai's detention means and how to get her out. Since the military took over power in from the democratically elected government on February 1st, the people of uh, Myanmar has been engaged in a nationwide uh, national strike, uh, which they call the CDM, the Collective Disobedience Movement. Um, um, And one of the leading faction of the strikes has been garment workers, uh, when along with, I think, teachers and doctors uh, initially, then garment workers was were actually quite quickly on the streets protesting against the military takeover. And uh, if we go back just before the coup, um, I mean, Myanmar has undergone uh, a big big changes since um, the, the kind of first attempts to uh, become more democratic. Although we should always keep in mind that in Burma. Democracy has always been a little bit, um, uh, has not been full democracy. Um, military has always kept some power. Nevertheless, there were openings, um, spaces for, for people to, to take on more democratic rights. And, um, in, since 2012 until the coup, we could see uh, a big buildup of, um, of, uh, of the labor movement from in 2012, where unions actually became legal. Uh, then over time, uh, lots of work, workers joined unions. And um, uh, in particular in the garment sector, you have uh, a big diversity of unions uh, fighting to improve the, the, their rights. Uh, so when we reached the, the pandemic last year, the Burmese trade union movement was actually one of the most uh, uh, vibrant movements in Southeast Asia, I would say. So the labor movement, uh, there was a, there were several unions um, in, in the garment industry alone. You you have uh, four or five major groups of unions, and one of them is the Solidarity Trade Union Movement of Myanmar, um, STUM, which is led by. Uh, Do Miu Miu uh, I, who who is one of um, one of the the oldest uh, women leaders in the movement, um, and uh, STUM, uh, although not the biggest union in in Myanmar, still is a is a strong union with with uh, workers organized in 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 several factories, and having uh, a very strong focus on women leadership. Um, and uh, STUM, along with other unions, uh, I mean, I think you can say um, th- there was there has been a unity amongst the the unions in Burma uh, in Myanmar in the last uh, uh, two months, where everybody uh, has joined uh, the protests, and that also includes STUM, who has has also been playing. A leading role in 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 these uh, protests against the military takeover. 
Is there any way that she might be released soon? Or what kind of recourse does have in the movement? I would say, concerningly, I would say that there are not many, um, there's not a lot of hope for uh, for activists of, of any kind to, to get released at uh, the current circumstances. I mean, uh, I think we can safely say rule of law was was already not not a very well-developed concept before the coup but um since the coup there's no rule of law Uh, so the authorities both soldiers and and police will detain whoever they feel is threatening their hold of power and uh, whether you have done anything or not that that's that doesn't really matter they will they can cook up some charges for you so for Miu Miu, the, the, the worry is that she will spend a long time in prison because they will just keep her there. She is already in, in the, uh, put into the notorious insane prison, which is where the, the, typ- uh, the main prison for political um, prisoners uh, has been that. This been a prison that has been used for political prisoners throughout um the military dictatorships in the past and uh, so while they're still putting some charges against Miu Miu and she will um have a hearing at the end of the month um uh, i think uh, without some strong pressure um i i i, I doubt uh, she will be able to escape further imprisonment unfortunately so is there anything that listeners should be aware of in terms of types of international pressure that can be brought to bear on the situation? Yes, I think uh, the, the military junta will only listen to uh, whoever ha- has some power. Uh, otherwise, they, they are not listening to reason. So that, that that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, and I think the only... Um, Apart from military power, the only other power they would listen to is economic power. So uh, the question here is, uh, um, I mean, to the to the extent that everybody can can help is to to put to demand to put more pressure on economically on Myanmar to hold Myanmar the junta accountable and make sure that um, yeah. Uh, money is not flowing into the military coffers. So that means uh, um, economic uh, assistance, economic um, sanctions should not happen and to the government and uh, sanctions, particularly uh, to to any um, uh, companies that are involved with the military uh, is, is urgently needed to, to show that uh, um, people in outside <laughs> Myanmar care about Myanmar and, and wants to see a restoration of democracy and therefore um, there can be no business as usual with the country. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I'm sure uh, trade unions have around the world have at least tried to show solidarity and, you know, tried to contribute to strike fund and things like that. Yes. And they, if, I mean, there are, there are some um, also uh, within the U.S. labor movements, uh, several groups that are uh, collecting money for for uh, solidarity funds for the unions. And uh, 
I believe uh, donations are most welcome to these uh, groups. Money is urgently needed, and also a lot of other uh, union leaders, even if they are not yet arrested, they are either in hiding or yeah, uh, facing other uh, kinds of harassment from the from the military. That was Bent Gert, field director for Southeast Asia at Worker Rights Consortium. So our last episode, we talked a whole lot about Bessemer and the Amazon union election going on there. And now, of course, we know the results and they weren't good. But so, Michelle, um, tell me what your takeaways from this are. Well, I guess, I mean, I'm not going to have a really scintillating hot take on this. <laughs> we're, um, it's too late you know, for scintillating hot takes. We're into well-lukewarm right. takes now. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I would echo what so many others have said that it's, you know, disappointing, but not entirely shocking. Um, so I guess in, in the aftermath, there's been some soul searching and, um, you know, some perhaps what some might call Monday morning quarterbacking on the part of um, <laughs> organizers and commentators. Um, and I guess, I mean, you know, this is, I guess this is, uh, if you're going to have a hot take, now's the time to do it. Um, I guess it, it is interesting to think about, um, you know, this question of, was it overhyped or were people mm-hmm. overly optimistic? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, to some extent, I feel like one, it's not really my place as a journalist to really <laughs> second guess what, um, you know, every, um, calculated risk that organizers take, um, you know, when they're on the ground and, and this is a hot shop and they responded to it and, you know, they took a chance and, um, and, you know, they fought pretty, pretty valiantly. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, just setting aside the various critiques that have been about, you know, tactics and whatnot. Um, I think, um, I, I mean, I think the reason it was, it was hyped, I don't want to say overhyped, but the reason it was people got excited about it was because it was an exciting campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, the negative outcome, um, you know, A, wasn't entirely shocking and B, um, you know, doesn't necessarily negate, um, you know, all of the momentum and the inspiration and the general interest in Mm -hmm. the broader public that, um, that it generated. And, and of course, you know, of course it was a big story because Amazon's, you know, there's yeah. like, you know, Jeff Bezos is a big deal. And, um, and of course we're <laughs> going to see it as a David and Goliath kind of battle, but um, I, I don't, I don't think the, I mean, I, I don't think the fact that people were perhaps overly optimistic about it or really excited about it necessarily um, changed. I don't think it changed the nature of the organizing that was happening on the shop floor at the time. And, you know, I don't think it had it negatively influenced events on the ground as they unfolded. It might make people feel in retrospect, a little bit silly for getting so excited, but I don't think that we should feel bad for being really inspired by what the workers did. Yeah. I think one of the things that's been really hard is there are sort of two reactions, right? Which is just to be like absolutely devastated and to be like sort of mad that they even tried. Yeah. And I feel like both of those are kind of reactions that I, I don't quite understand. Um, 
we knew it was a huge long shot because like you and I are old enough to remember Nissan and Volkswagen and any number of other Southern organizing drives that were supposed to be the moment when labor would crack the South. I mean, I'm not old enough to remember Operation Dixie, but I've read about it. And, you know, each time those have not succeeded, the conditions have been very different, right? Amazon obviously ran a scorched earth anti-union campaign here while um, the Volkswagen situation was supposedly a friendly company that wanted to have German style works councils. And, you know, what you got there was local politicians going smoke to earth instead. Um, But over and over again, one of the problems in the South is that there's not a sort of culture of unions. And so these big campaigns, by bringing a lot of attention to this and to like at least some workers desire for a union, I do think helps change that, right? It helps contribute to the fact that like, you know, this is a possible thing. And the fact that the campaign was so long, that it was mail-in because of the pandemic and that like the voting period was extraordinarily long. Yeah. And there was a um, fucking mailbox work. that Amazon yeah, planted. <laughs> but like you had workers who literally were saying like, oh, I voted early and voted no, but then I kind of wanted to change my vote. And like, you know, Joe Biden's video speech sort of came out like halfway through the voting period. You know, so it's an interesting question there to say like what ground has been laid here for the future. Um, and yeah, but I mean, also it's just a clear case for labor law reform, right? Like Brandon Magner, who was on the show recently explaining um, what the PRO Act does and doesn't mean for freelancers, wrote a post also about like, what about Amazon's anti-union campaign would have been illegal if we had the PRO Act? Um, And I mean, this week we had the absolute flat on my back, shocked moment of Joe Manchin signing on to co-sponsor the PRO Act. So, you know, miracles might happen. Yes, Who the knows? times they are changing. But it's, it was a real moment for reminding us exactly how stacked in the boss's favor the current labor law regime really is. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if outside observers take away anything from that effort is, I mean, if they are shocked that, um, that the, you know, the union lost as badly as it did, then they would do well to try to put that in the context of all the union busting that took place. And hopefully they will be as disgusted by it as you and I are. Um, Yeah, I think it really was a moment too for like people like Andy Levin, like Congressman Andy Levin um, had a really good Twitter thread about like just how different a union election like this is than like going to vote on election day, like everybody else, right? Um, like a normal election that people think of and and how a union election ends up being absolutely nothing like that, right? And I think, because there's a lot of people over the last several years who have gotten interested in unions and class politics and socialism as like a project that should be driven by the working class, but still have very little experience in their own lives also, with unions, with labor, with labor law, with the way all of this stuff works, Um, you know? And so I think this is a moment where you can say to people like, yeah, and you know, the the night that the results came in was a Friday night and me and Connor Lewis from Strike Wave just sort of got on Instagram live and and talked about it for two hours. So that's also why I'm running out of hot takes is I, I squandered them all on Instagram live. You, you've scattered your hot takes to the wind. But it, <laughs> but it really reminded me that 
creating spaces where we can have sort of informal conversations with people who don't, like you and I do, spend our lives knee deep in labor law and policy and all of this stuff. Um, and just say like, yeah, so this is what was normal. Like somebody on that on that Instagram live asked like, what about Amazon's anti-union campaign was different? Did we see them doing anything new that we think is going to be imported anywhere else? And I was kind of like, honestly, no, it's just, it was more intense because Amazon has the world's best surveillance technology. Yeah. You know, it was more wall to wall, but in terms of what they did, the kind of employer threats that get made, we're going to close it down. You're going to give up all the benefits that you have and you're going to lose your job and blah, 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 blah. The union just wants your dues. Like all of that is just bog standard employer bullshit. Yeah. And it was actually surprisingly uncreative, like like yeah. their do it without dues website. It was like that's the best you can come up with. Jesus, you're paying like a hundred thousand dollars a minute for these anti union yeah. consultants or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And like this is what they got. Yeah, you know, good lord! Like that Confessions of a Union Buster dude wrote his book like how many decades ago? Right. Now? It's like um, Jeff Bezos, you're the future of work. This yeah. is the best you can do. But, <laughs> but um, of exploitation. Um, that's what we should start talking about rather yeah. than the future of work. Yeah. The future the of exploitation. Is, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, I mean, the, like when you get down to sort of the brass tacks of how Amazon operates, their exploitation is pretty old school as well, right? Like it's Amazon has this veneer, you know, of being a, you know, this like tech company on the vanguard of everything, but, you know, the right. type of sort of dehumanizing work conditions that people are subjected to, like, yes, it does use technology in new ways and mm-hmm. you know, has hyped up surveillance of workers that we haven't really seen deployed um, at scale before, but, um, you know, you know, speed up and all these, and just, you know, the, the sort of bone crunching pressure of being constantly, um, you know, uh, under the surveillance of, of bosses telling you to perform faster and faster. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much as old as industrial capitalism. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it, I just tweeted this today, actually, that like, you know, 99% of what people think is a new innovation under capitalism is actually the way it's always been. Right. Or often like reversion back to an earlier version, like Dania Rajendra, friend of the show and, and director of Athena, the anti-Amazon coalition, um, was just talking about like, Amazon is just the new British East India company. Right. You know, right. Um, and, you know, the same way, of, like, you know, Uber is not really doing anything new or innovative. Exactly. It's just, it's just, just, you know, taking, um, you know, crappy working conditions that drivers for hire have always been subjected to right. and distilling it into a shiny app. <laughs> but, exactly. Right. And like algorithmic management, like one of these days, actually, we should have um, a friend of mine who wrote a dissertation on algorithmic management on the show because he is a charming, wonderful human that would be great to talk about this. But um, because like there is the thing about it is that it's just like everything is in the sort of technological black box. But again, the management techniques are not new and the union busting techniques are not new And the speed up, you know, the Amazon workers that I've talked to, which brings me to our segue into our main conversation here, um, were, you know, the way they talk about the sort of work speed up and the robots and the technology on the shop floor in these Amazon facilities that are supposedly so technologically advanced, they just sound like the workers from, you know, Detroit factories in the 70s. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week with Stephen Pitts and Robin Kelly, um, you know, the way that workers have always been sort of bashing themselves against the automation and the automation just serves to sort of make workers act more like robots. Yeah. 
I mean, the alienation of labor, man, it's a pretty old story. <laughs> so, um, and it's yeah, really I mean, old story. <laughs> for sure. And um, I was, I mean, going back to um, our talk earlier this month on, on Bessemer, which I'm glad we had before the union vote, because <laughs> <laughs> there was still a glimmer of optimism left in us, but um, I, was, I don't feel demoralized though. That's yeah. the thing. Like somebody right. messaged me about it and was like, you know, oh, this is why we're all demoralized. And I'm like, I don't feel demoralized at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the workers feel really shitty and I'm, I feel like really bad for everybody who like went through the hell of this anti-union campaign. But I think it was amazing how many people were interested in this thing. The New York Times had a live vote tracker yeah. on its homepage. Oh, yeah. When was the last time that that happened? You know? Probably never because they probably haven't had a live vote tracker the last time they cared that much about a union election, right? Um, so yeah, I just, I don't think that this should be demoralizing to anybody who's interested in organizing and labor and workers' rights and the struggle for the liberation of the working class, not to get too grandiose here, but seriously. Even the critiques, you know, I mean, of course, I think there's, you know, some, they're sort of, you know, some chest beating and soul searching and, and a lot of pensiveness, but I think, I mean, people wouldn't be, people wouldn't be um, sort of trying to go over what went wrong. They wouldn't be thinking this hard about what to do next time if they weren't on some level inspired by what happened, right? So even sort of the negative takes on it are, you know, no one's giving up, right? (laughs) Like everyone's just trying to make the next one better. Yeah, no, I think. The thing that I really, that I, I said jokingly on that Instagram live, but like I, I will say sort of more seriously here is that like, you know, if the answer is that the union did everything perfectly and you just can't beat Amazon, that answer sucks. You know, the answer that like we did this thing and this thing, and maybe we should have done it this way and this way. And we did this because we were worried about safety in a pandemic, but maybe, you know, we won't do that next time. And hopefully knock on whatever, we'll all be vaccinated by the next time. Um, you know, like all of these things, if there's nothing we can think of to do differently, if there are no criticisms to learn from, then how do we win? Right. How does anybody win if Amazon is just this unbeatable monster and that's the only answer here? Right. And so, you know, I think I think criticisms, comradely criticisms are are entirely necessary and important to sort of moving forward and thinking about a time when, you know, you can break the hold that Jeff Bezos has over our imaginations and our pocketbooks. I mean, one of the things that um, what I was going to say earlier about our, our talk um, uh, with with Robin and, and Stephen was that, um, you know, the other examples of efforts to organize in the South are um, with the auto industry, which is in some ways a, you know, mm-hmm. a very legacy industry. Um, you know, and yeah. contrast that with Amazon, which is seen as, oh, Amazon is the future. But in the end, you know, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn, both in terms of what the unions yeah. did and what the companies did um, that are quite similar. Right. And, you know, the, you know, maybe the, the common denominator is that um, it's really hard to organize in the South. But the other common denominator is that, um, you know, the, the UAW didn't become this you know, gigantic legacy union overnight. I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of losses that, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, quite, quite violent battles, right. That led up to um, what it eventually achieved. And I think that in some ways, and this perhaps goes with um, the detachment of the general 
um, public and the body politic from the history of unions, right, and, and labor history in the United States is that we sort of don't have that much of a collective memory um, for the most part about how difficult these struggles were, right? I mean, people have a general yeah, sense yeah. of maybe the decline of unions, but they don't actually they don't actually know that much, perhaps, about the what the what the, the upward the right place. what the upward end of that what the yeah. upward portion of that trajectory was like right i mean there were, people yeah. died yeah, and, yeah. And, no absolutely absolutely and um and yeah and i guess um this sort of reminds me of you know the reason all the all the sort of um dialogue that's going on um you know both publicly and privately i'm sure um among organizers and yes. people who write mm-hmm. about labor i think and i agree with you i think it's healthy but, and i also think there's maybe a parallel here too um, in the lead up to the election when everyone is getting really excited and people are saying, oh, should we boycott Amazon? Should we do this? Should we do that? And there's a, je- yeah. a real sense that people wanted to feel connected to what was going on there and they wanted yes. to do the right thing, but they didn't, they couldn't quite grasp the right you know, sort of political or economic levers to pull because they didn't have mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of visceral experience of organizing on the ground and they didn't have maybe the proximity to unions or a culture of organizing. Um, And so, you know, they came up with ideas like a boycott, which is sort of, you know, kind of a predictable thing that maybe people would think of when they're thinking about a company that they largely only know as consumers, right? So um, the fact that this campaign really made Amazon workers not only visible, but like the biggest news story, right, for a few weeks is pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, Amazon workers peeing in bottles was a thing that Amazon had to admit to. Yeah. And I think that this is a, a really interesting point because I had this conversation actually with Dania. And again, Dania is, is the director of the Athena Coalition, which organizes a lot of people against Amazon in a variety of ways and is a place that people can turn some of those energies when they want to actually be organizing in solidarity, right? Because I think that we have right now, is, as we were saying, right, there's a lot of people who are just getting interested in unions and labor and workers and, you know, DSA has turned out, I, I think, 100,000 calls for the PRO Act. Like, you know, there are people who are really invested in this thing now and willing to, like, put some time and effort into it. And so unions, you know, the comprehensive campaign strategy has been around for a while, but it is a product of the era of weakness. And we're not in that same era of weakness now. We're certainly in an era of, like, organized NLRB recognized union weakness. And this is where I'm going to segue into our main conversation because these are just going to kind of overlap. But Michelle and I both have pieces in a series at the American Prospect on worker centers. And this connects up to the Amazon thing really quickly and easily because um, for my piece, I started off with the workers from the Awood Center in Minneapolis who organize at Amazon. And you know, and they are not a union, right? They're not trying to win an NLRB election, but they have had walk-offs, strikes, all sorts of collective action on the shop floor and won real victories and gotten Amazon to bargain with them. Amazon denies that it's bargaining, but it sat down with worker representatives to talk about things like prayer time and fasting during Ramadan, which it is Ramadan right now while we're talking about this. Um, you know, things that these workers needed accommodations around. And some people might write that off as identity politics, but like 
These are physical needs of workers and they are needs of workers to be treated like humans and not like products of the machine. I mean, it's, you know, some might dismiss it as identity politics, but it is a constitutionally guaranteed right. And so, you know, Amazon is yes. um, there. It's uh, well within their right to advocate for it. And, and I remember like that meeting that they had arranged with Amazon between the Awood workers and Amazon. I mean, that was years ago, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was long yeah, before, yeah. Um, you know, the Bessemer was even a, a twinkle in... <laughs> In the retail workers' union eyes, right? But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, all this to say, this is this is an, uh, you know, it's organizing at Amazon is not just um, is not just you know something that happens you know around a union election, right? I mean, this is this has right. been going on for for many years now, and even um, you know even before the Wood Center, right? Like there there. As long as there has been, as long as Amazon has been, you know, a, a massive and growing force, there have been there has been resistance to it, and there's been resistance to okay. Amazon's, um, you know, Amazon's consolidation and um, and mm-hmm. you know, outsized influence in the retail industry among communities, right? I mean, right. there there are so many angles from which people can resist yeah. Amazon, and um, and you know, Amazon as one of the biggest workplaces in the country, you know, it's, um, I think Walmart's still bigger. Walmart. Yes. Walmart uh, second only to Walmart that this is true, but yeah. Amazon is, I mean, uh, during the pandemic it expanded massively. So it might only be a matter of time before it kind of eclipses Walmart. So, yeah. um, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, similar to Walmart, right. I mean, um, there's, there always been groups of workers who felt alienated and, you know, maybe reached out to, unions for support, um, reached out to community groups for support, um, mm-hmm. and were able to, mm-hmm. um, and were able to find ways to, um, to bring their voices into the workplace and like, and, you know, the, our labor laws, so incredibly constrained that like it has, it really like has no ability to, you know, contemplate many of these other ways of uh, workers advocating for themselves. Um, that being said, you know, at the NLRB, I mean, many like, and this is, uh, you know, outside of Bessemer, a, a lot of workers at Amazon facilities have been filing NLRB complaints, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. And that's the thing that's interesting because right now, you know, we, we still have crappy labor law, um, but we have a much more responsive labor board right now. Right. And that is a thing that, you know, I mean, friend of the show, Kayla Blado from e- formerly of EPI and over. the uh, Nonprofit Professional Employees Union is now staff at the NLRB. Hi, yeah. Kayla, if you're it's listening. Over. She um, and, you know, um, it's it's quite stunning to me, honestly, that we have like former belabored guests in the administration. So, you know, that's cool. But like thinking about the way that unions that don't go through or organizations, right? Since we're talking about worker centers or worker organizations of a variety of sorts that provide that kind of legal support and help in filing complaints because your average person, I have no idea how to file an NLRB complaint and I've been a labor journalist for 11 years. You know, I would still have to like get somebody to help me do it. So, you know, organizations that started out doing that kind of thing that you don't actually need to be a recognized union to take advantage of, right? Like Tyler Hamilton, actually from the Awood Center, um, or one of the Amazon workers who organizes with the Awood Center, was saying to me when we were talking for this piece, you know, he's like, in, you know, in school, they teach you about your right to vote. They teach you about all these other rights that you have. You talk about the Bill of Rights. 
they don't ever teach you about your rights as a worker. That's not a thing that you like study in high school civics class, right? Um, That's a thing that we are just sort of expected to figure out somehow on our own. And so a big thing that, that so many of these centers do is just like, first of all, just like tell people what their rights are. Yeah. And um, I mean, in terms of our workplace rights, you know, in many ways, we sort of check our constitutional rights at the door when we enter the workplace because our labor law has yeah. been and, 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 you know, the sort of, you know, the case law uh, around labor law has been sort of orchestrated to um, really undermine workers' ability to advocate for themselves, to defend their rights in the job, and to, you know, um, and to basically, um, you know, do any of the things that would be, (laughs) do many of the things that would be considered part and parcel of the Bill of Rights, you know, you know, the the rights that we have as citizens, uh, you know, somehow those just sort of dissipate when when, uh, we're expected to sort of, you know, be at the beck and call of... um, of our boss, or in this case, a faceless corporation. Yeah. So, and like one of the things, you know, when you we were talking to the Awood Center workers, you know, one of the things that came out so clearly was that, you know, they weren't just talking about, they weren't complaining about pay, right? Like alone, yeah. they, they were just, they were talking about how dehumanizing and alienating the working right. conditions were. And, and they yeah. were seeking some kind of, um, some kind of dignity on the job. Right. And so the, you know, in many ways, I think the, the mission of worker centers or the, the kind of the ethos that they've developed as a movement is to, um, is to try to address many of those issues that aren't simply contained in a typical collective bargaining agreement. Right. I mean, um, in some ways they, of course they are constrained because they can't do the things that unions do, but in many ways they don't want to do the things that unions do um, because um, unions have all sorts of um, legal restraints in terms of what they can advocate for. Whereas worker centers see themselves as based in, um, in a community, right? They derive their legitimacy not through a collective bargaining contract, but through um, through their connection to the people and their families. Yeah, and that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I, I, American labor law is terrible in a lot of ways, but in one way, it is good, which is that you don't need to be in a union to have the right to protect a concerted activity. So you are legally protected if you and two of your colleagues walk off the job because your boss is doing X, Y, Z thing that you don't like. You have an absolute legal right to do that. And you might end up in a protracted process at the NLRB, but you do have rights to do that, whether or not you win an election. And that, that protection of, you know, basically of direct action on the shop floor is the space that worker centers start in, right? That you can do that whether or not you are a union. And I remember when I was reporting on the NLRB last year, I mean, one of the things, and I was talking to staffers at the NLRB and they're saying that, you know, yes, um, you know, U.S. labor law is shit and, <laughs> you know, and and Taft-Hartley and all this other stuff that's been done to it <laughs> over the years is, you know, have, they're, all, they're all aimed at sort of systematically um, disempowering workers. But if you look at Section 7, right, you know, this, this is one thing that really is unique in, in American law, you know, that is, and it just, it, it codifies people's right to organize and advocate for better working conditions. And like, and there's no other, there's no other clause in any other law um, 
like that, right? And and it's and it's this thing that has been under attack since the day it was passed, right? But but it is it's right. kind of remarkable, and that's kind of why we need to protect it and enhance it. Um, so. Yeah. yeah, going back to the PRO Act. But, but yeah, I mean, and, and the other thing is, um, you know, about the, the sort of the process of filing complaints and other things like that. Um, there are so many um, worker centers that began maybe as a program or a legal clinic to help workers file, mm-hmm. you know, wage and hour complaints or, you know, to try to address wage theft. And then over time, they, you know, cultivated a base of workers who were, um, you know, really um, outraged about their working conditions and realized along the way that like, rather than going complaint by complaint, like what we really need to do is take this group of people that we've assembled here and try to push for systemic change. And that's how a lot of worker centers and, and, and the movement more broadly sort of, um, you know, came into its own as a movement, right? I mean, when people realize that you can fight individual fights or you can fight collectively and whatever you want to call that collective, you know, union or worker center, um, it's really powerful. Yeah. And one of the things that you wrote about in your piece that was really interesting was the way that worker centers and collectively organized workers are playing roles in labor standards enforcement and and being really sort of considered both through like local legislation and also through their own action in like not only changing the law, but in being really involved in making sure it's enforced. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that part. Yeah. I mean, the um, so there's um, kind of a model, I guess, that's developed over time called um, uh, worker-driven social responsibility. And it sort of emerged, it emerged primarily as, as a way, as a sort of a practical way for workers who did not have, you know, um, who were generally ignored by regulatory structures like the Department of Labor and also did not have the backing of union. It, it, it emerged as sort of a way to, through a series of private agreements with employers and with other actors in the supply chain to set up, say, like codes of conduct, right? Um, but, uh, and, you know, the Coalition of Mockley Workers is one good example of this. Um, I talked about a group called Migrant Justice, which organized Vermont dairy workers yeah. in a similar way. Um, you know, this is also seen as supply chain organizing, which is also kind of an emerging component of labor organizing now, but, um, but it also emerged as sort of a direct counterpoint to corporate social responsibility, which is this PR, basically, right. <laughs> like a lot of right. BS that is designed to basically be sort of like a, a whitewash for um, corporations to make it seem like they're adhering to a code of ethics and workers kind of um, have sort of flipped that on its head and said, no, workers should be in charge of enforcing labor law and developing these standards because we are the ones who are most affected by them. And, you know, they've come up with really creative ways to um, work with independent auditing firms to set up um, sort of a a complaint structure, right? Um, So not not exactly the same as a traditional grievance process, but they're able to, you know, bring complaints um, and then go through, um, you know, a a pretty efficient resolution process. Um, And, you know, they've developed um, sort of oversight structures and things like that, but, you know, and, and it gets, gets more and more complicated as, as um, you know, the, uh, the supply chain organizing gets more and more complicated, but I mean, the coalition of Mockley workers, like it started out as this, you know, scrappy, group of farm workers in Florida um, who were angry about 
their working conditions and wanted to do something to change them. And they ended up managing to engage not only the public um, in wanting to change their working conditions, but also, you know, their direct employers, um, you know, wholesalers and distributors in the tomato supply chain. And finally, you know, retailers, fast food joints, uh, supermarkets, um, you know, grocery stores like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. Like they, they managed to enlist all of these actors and get them to agree to um, you know, a binding uh, enforceable agreement. And it's uh, not the same as a collective bargaining contract, but in many ways it can be seen as, um, in some ways, I mean, it's it's more powerful in that it actually- It is kind of a collectively bargained yeah, contract. I mean, in some ways it's, <laughs> it's, it is, it is in fact collectively bargained without being a collective bargaining contract, you know, TM. But yeah. um, the, but, you know, it it is- it does, it does go beyond what a collective bargaining contract would do, right? Because it's not just a contract between um, labor and the employer, but it's looking at all of these actors in the supply chain that are collectively responsible for the working conditions, right? And so you can negotiate something yeah. at the top that's like a, a wage premium that can be paid and, and make sure that, that that is passed all the way down to workers' pockets. And so, um, and so in many ways, it's, it's kind of an interesting um, sort of 21st century version of collective bargaining in the sense that it really looks at how these supply chains are really vertically integrated and also looks at how the workforce and, um, and the production process has been globalized essentially. Right. And so, um, you know, you see similar models that are emerging in Bangladesh after the tragedy at Rana Plaza, um, where so many workers died in a factory accident, um, in, in a building collapse, um, you actually have workers working on enforcement of safety standards and safety conditions. And, and I think it, it also speaks to this, idea that workers, you know, just because they're workers does not mean that they cannot engage in high level policy discussions, right? Or that they can't be experts on occupational safety, right? Or that they can't have very innovative ways of addressing sexual harassment at work, right? These are all things that people perhaps, uh, you know, would have, uh, on these issues, people perhaps would have underestimated low wage workers, right? Who don't have a college education Mm -hmm. or or not in management, right? Um, But in fact, right, they are, they're the experts at, um, at protecting themselves. <laughs> and it, at, right. And the work processes that they do, right. That like, you know, everybody, you know, going back to Frederick Winslow Taylor has tried to sort of scientifically figure out the most efficient way to work, but like the people who are doing that job are the ones who develop the most efficient ways to work. And, right. <laughs> anyway, so that's the thing. Um, So your piece was specifically about immigrant workers and worker centers, because, I mean, worker centers in the U.S. basically grow out of immigrant community organizing. Yeah. One of the things that you you mentioned in there specifically that I wanted to make sure we talked about this week because it's very exciting was the organizing that immigrant groups have done during the pandemic. And one of the things that people won recently is this excluded workers fund in New York. And so... um, can you yeah tell us about sort of what they won and 
why this is a big deal, like who the excluded workers are, right? Right. You know, excluded workers going back many years, I mean, there was an excluded workers Congress that, you know, tried to explicitly tackle the issues that were facing workers who were left out of the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Labor Relations Act. And many of those, of course, were immigrants, um, undocumented immigrants, but also increasingly, you know, other types of worker, you know, domestic workers, right? Uh, Many of them were sort of categorically excluded by the nature of the work that they did. But the Excluded Workers Fund was sort of um, born out of this idea that um, workers who uh, who were um, excluded from any of the um, stimulus payments and or the uh, unemployment benefits that had been made available um, as part of the pandemic relief packages to um, many workers across the country, um, the, the Fund for Excluded Workers was designed to remedy that deficit, right, and was supposed to sort of try to um, equalize equalize the types of benefits um, that um, that those excluded workers were eligible for. So um, recently, the New York State Legislature, um, after a very long, months-long campaign and um, several weeks of a hunger strike by workers involved in the coalition, um, they managed to pass a $2.1 billion fund, which is about 1% of the entire New York state budget um, for all of the Republicans who are outraged that these, these workers were getting something. Um, But it's about $2.1 billion. And um, it's actually less than what uh, the coalition was originally pushing for, but it's $2.1 billion that will provide sort of a, a, a system of of uh, paying money to workers that are designed to compensate for the unemployment benefits that were not provided to uh, to these workers during the pandemic. So if they lost a job or they lost income uh, during the pandemic, they should be able to apply. Um, uh, They might be eligible for up to um, payments of uh, either $15,600 if they uh, qualify for what's called tier one or uh, $3,200 if they qualify for tier two. And the difference between tier one and tier two um, has more to do with um, the type of documentation that you're able to provide to prove that you were, you know, that you lost income during this time period um, or that you became unemployed. So um, it's complicated, but um Primarily, this is aimed at uh, undocumented workers, uh, workers who work in the cash economy, um, and others who are not quite recognized or on the books, as it were, um, under formal labor law. Um, Originally, there had been language in the bill to explicitly include formerly incarcerated people um, because they were also, um, you know, because um, they were incarcerated, they um, lacked uh, often the documentation that would be needed or the type of work history that would be needed to qualify for unemployment. So, um, but, uh, you know, the, the issue now um, is now that they've established this $2.1 billion fund, um, the workers and the worker centers and the other community-based organizations that were involved in this, and this includes, um, you know, um, the New York Nail Salon Workers Association, uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance, Domestic Workers United, um, and other organizations like um, and other unions actually um, that we're involved in as well. All these groups are going to have to come together and make sure that the workers who are eligible for this fund are going to be able to apply and are going to be able to provide the documentation that's needed. So um, we don't want you know even more workers. We don't want workers to be excluded again from. 
fun. But um, I actually worked on a teaching about this with um, the Queen's with DSA and uh, the immigrant advocates and, and Queen's DSA um, and Make the Road New York. And, you know, one of the things that we discussed when, uh, you know, when thinking about this was um, basically, you know, how, um, you know, how do we ensure that, um, that, you know, in Albany that there's really, um, that lawmakers really take this seriously and that there's a real, you know, that, that there's a, there's a real sense that there's a, there's a real mandate here to make these workers yeah. whole. And um, that is one thing that is um, unprecedented about this. Yeah. It's really exciting. I'm really, yeah. Really and it's, it's it. the biggest, like California had a little, a fund like this, but it was much smaller. So this is kind of the biggest yeah. um, effort by any state um, to, to fund excluded workers. So it'll be interesting to see, how it is enforced and how it is implemented. And, um, and we know, you know, probably you and I both know from watching, you know, the domestic workers bill of rights is um, here in New York, which is another big thing that passed in New York back, you know, um, over 10 years ago now um, is that enforcement has been one of the really difficult things, um, even when workers have these rights in the books, you know, so. Right. Back to what we were just talking about, right. Is, is how do you get the workers involved in enforcement Um, and the excluded workers thing? It's, Again, it connects to one of these main questions about sort of worker centers, which is like so many of them grow up in and around industries that are excluded, right? So that like workers, it, like domestic workers, as you were just saying, but um, it it connects to this larger idea that like some workers are unorganizable, right? And the way that we have to, you know, that like the NLRB process was designed in the period of the CIO and industrial organizing. And it is on some level designed to privilege those kinds of workplaces, right? Which like, there are less of those kinds of workplaces in the US now than there were when the Wagner Act was passed in 1935, right? So the fact that like more and more workers were suddenly sort of quote unquote unorganizable, instead of the response just being, well, we need to save the factories, which we've talked about many times on this podcast, we also needed a response, which was like, yeah, okay, but all of those people who were carved out of the thing, anytime you carve people out of labor law, longtime listeners have heard me say this a million times, their conditions are going to come for you. Their conditions are going to come for everyone, right? Like this is what's happening with Prop 22 is now that um, Uber and Lyft and and DoorDash and their buddies got Prop 22, they're going to try to expand that both across the country and also to expand the amount of workers who fit into those carve outs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, like the response, the response to workers being carved out of labor law shouldn't be like, oh, they're unorganizable. Like, no, no, no. That's what right. that's what the people who wrote the law want you to think. Right. Like, no, they are exactly. they are extra organizable. They they need to be organized. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and the thing about that, of course, is that the workers who were excluded were not excluded because they were uniquely unorganizable. They were excluded because the New Deal was a you know, a compromise with a bunch of Southern racists who didn't want black workers to have the same legal protections right. as white workers. So, and this is, so my piece for the, this, um, this section was, I was asked to sort of write about intersectionality in worker centers. And so the way that sent like the Awood center is based in not just immigrant workers, but like a specific immigrant worker community, which has specific needs around being, you know, practicing Muslims and therefore needing prayer time and accommodations for when they're fasting during Ramadan. Um, But I also wrote about the Miami Worker Center, 
who um, did this wonderful long sort of collaborative process with their members of coming up with what they called the Femme Agenda, which is um, a really incredible sort of guiding document that that shaped their whole understanding of how to organize what were mostly Black women and many of them immigrant Black women um, workers in Miami. So a lot of them are domestic workers, so that means they are excluded from labor law. And But they're also focusing a lot on housing issues because, um, gosh, the first time I talked to the Miami Worker Center folks was after um, Hurricane Maria, I think. And they were doing work to make sure that their community members, you know, had access to housing and safety and all of the things that you need when a disaster has just hit your community. And so like that, that thing that as Jane McAlevey calls it whole worker organizing, right. Where you see the workers as people whose needs don't begin and end when they walk through the door of the workplace. And if you're a domestic worker, you're just walking through somebody else's door. It's not like you turn yourself off and on in the same way. Right. So you bring all of those needs and all of those things that you are into the workplace. And this is why, you know, when we talk about, for instance, like transgender workers face the highest rates of employment discrimination of anybody and particularly trans workers of color. So we have to actually think about like the exclusions were on purpose. They They were designed to exclude people from certain quote unquote identity categories, right. right? Because the people who wrote those laws thought those people didn't count. Right. Or they, I mean, not only did they um, think they didn't count and despise those people, but they were, they were afraid of what would happen if they organized, right? I mean, those are the people yes. who, when organized, would terrify you know, the powers that be, right? So um, the reason they're excluded is because if they became included, they would really fuck shit up. (laughs) That's such a good point, though. I'm so glad you said that. Right. Because, yeah, like the Southern Democrats didn't just not want black workers to have rights because they didn't like them, which is true. But also because, right, like the biggest sort of fear in the, you know, formerly known as the Confederacy is revenge, right? Is that like people who they enslaved would want some retribution and not you know, or reparations or, (laughs) I mean, reparations, they certainly don't want to give reparations, but like, they're really afraid that like, if, if black workers get power, that black workers will do to them what they did, which is a screwed up thing. But like, you know, so the, the idea of fear, I think is, is really useful to bring up because we are talking about power and there is a way that like, we, you know, we have in our notes here to talk about some of the weaknesses of worker centers too. And one of the weaknesses can be that instead of sort of leveraging direct action and worker power, they end up being sort of pleas for um, pity, you know, that, that you end up sort of asking nicely for people to feel bad for these very, very sad excluded workers. And so I think that it's really important. And the worker centers that we write about here that are doing this organizing well are always aware that they're powerful and not that like, Oh, we have to take care of these people because they're sad. Right. And that because, you know, they're, they're just beaten down and oppressed. Like, no man, like those workers in the Amazon warehouses in Minneapolis are incredibly strong and powerful and they're aware of what their rights are and they know how to shut that thing down when they need to. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, uh, there's, 
you know, always a tension, I think, in the worker center movement when people sort of talk about what direction it will ultimately take that, um, you know, do, do worker centers want to focus on providing services to people right. or do they want to focus on, you know, organizing? And of course, you know, the two are kind of inseparable in many of the missions that these worker centers undertake. But but I think, you know, the reason they provide services in, 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 in many ways is because they care about the community that they, they're, they're in, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not simply like, you know, they're, um, you know, it's like, a, it's not like a perk of being a member, right? So like, they're responding to the real needs of their communities. But um, along with that, right, they're also developing a political constituency. They're also cultivating, uh, you know, a sense of citizenship and a sense of, um, you know, wanting more than what what the their current circumstances provide. So I think, um, you know, I, I think to the extent that worker centers are trying to bridge the gap between, you know, community organizations and uh, civil rights organizations and worker organizations, um, you know, it, it does come down to, um, you know, what you were saying about whole worker organizing, right? It's, it's the idea that, um, yes, we care about our material circumstances, but we also care about ensuring, you know, the economic security of our children, right? And I mean, those are also material circumstances, right? Like not being allowed to, you know, take more breaks when you haven't eaten in 12 hours during Ramadan is a material circumstance, right? Like that is your physical health that you are risking there. If you are going to work in an incredibly physically demanding job, when because of your faith, you have not eaten. You need that physically. That's that's not like a, just a nice little thing. That These are also material, right? And these are things that I think we often miss that like yeah. the concerns of, of, you know, again, I hate sort of saying identity, but the, these are material, right? If you are being sexually harassed on the job and I have been sexually harassed on the job in both white collar and restaurant work, I also wore a white collar in a restaurant. But anyway, um, that is absolutely having an effect on your material circumstances. It is not just like, oh, this is annoying, but I can push it aside. It screws up everything about your life. Um, I would love a good study on the lifelong earnings of people who have been through really egregious sexual harassment early in their careers, because I would bet you it's lower. Um, Because this is one of the ways that they convince people to not make demands in the workplace is the various ways that they abuse you. Right, right. Yeah. On the one hand, you're right. Like, so, right. So we're talking not just about like, you know, so-called bread and butter issues, right. Which um, are, you know, one thing and that, but we're also talking about, um, I mean, they're not even like so-called identity issues. I mean, it's not like, right. Like you're sexually harassed. It's not like an identity issue. It's like, no, it's it's a human rights issue, right. You're sexually harassed also. Right. 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 I mean, it's like, this is why, like, I think the, the way the coalition of Mockley workers frames it is important. Mm -hmm. And also the domestic workers bill of rights, which is they were framing it in, in terms of human rights, right. Which was sort of this cross cutting idea that, um, you know, um, has its own complicated history. You know, <laughs> right. right. Which has its own complicated history, but, um, but is one kind of, you know, practical way to um, try to conceptualize what you mean when, you know, when yeah. you say workers want dignity on the job, which is, you know, dignity is, is, is sort of an amorphous term, but I think, you know, fundamentally when you talk to people, um, you know, there is, um, one of the ways that they organize is is they tap into people's sort of innate sense of justice. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and that can mean 
freedom from being sexually harassed on the job, or it can mean a living wage, or it can mean, uh, or, or it can mean, you know, the the right to a union election, right? So, like, there are all these different things, and it's never right. the same. It can mean, for it can mean the right to place. pray five times a day. Yeah, um, it's, yeah. yeah, all of these things, or the right to fair housing, right? Exactly. Which is like something yeah. that workers to have for. somewhere to live when you leave the yeah. workplace, right? Um, and all of this, I think, is really. It's why um, in this moment, like when we're thinking about the rise of a sort of new socialist movement, not sort of, a new socialist movement in a moment of weak union power, you have to actually think about all of the ways that these things overlap. Because again, as we were discussing in the beginning with with Bessemer, um, the lack of a culture of unions and of understanding worker organizing in this way, you know, one of the quotes in that um, was at the New York Times piece where they talked to the workers who had voted no. And one of them sort of was comparing the the union organizing calls to like sales calls. They were like, well, I didn't like their sales pitch. And it's like, oh my God, if we're seeing unions as something to sell to people, we're already losing, right? Um, yeah. You know, the, but, but to build the culture of what the union is, is like, and, and what, you know, I, I, I joke again, longtime listeners have heard me talk about the Newsies rule, right? Where like, you know, if we strike, then we're a union. But like, that is, I mean, A, that is what that section of the NLRA that we were talking about means, right? If you act concertedly, then you are a union and you do have rights. Um, But also, this is what makes an organization of workers, whatever it is, whether it is a worker center, you know, whether it's the workers at the, the Amazon facility who are members of the Awood Center, or whether it's the workers who are seeking to have a union, you know, officially recognized by the NLRB, or it's, you know, other forms of self-organized and spontaneous walk-offs like the the Bojangles workers that I interviewed earlier this summer, who, you know, they, two of them talked to each other and said, we're walking off because we don't feel like they've taken COVID safety precautions, right? Like all of those are worker organizing and worker power. And how we protect it, how we organize it further, and how we crystallize it into a movement. Um, I keep thinking of the the line from one of Diane de Prima's revolutionary letters, where she says, it's going to take all of us shoving at the thing from all directions to bring it down. And that's where I keep going when thinking about Amazon, right? Um, when thinking about all of the ways and, and the instincts of people who really wanted to boycott Amazon, um, in that moment is like, we do need to figure out where people can put that energy. And I mean, yeah. the best place you can put your energy if you want to support workers organizing is organize your own workplace um, and figure out ways to concretely be in solidarity with other workers through that organizing. But also, um, because one of the ways you can strengthen a union is paying dues to it. But also- right. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's another thing too, right? I mean, it's also about, um, you know, finding finding a, a, a way of um, of taking action in society that makes you feel like you're a real sort of stakeholder, yeah. right? In in um, in the thing that you're trying to change or the circumstances you're trying to change. Yeah. And like um, one of the interesting conversations that I had when I was reporting the worker center story was with um, uh, Janice Fine, mm-hmm. who's done a lot of work, yes. sort of analyzing worker centers and their structure and talking about um, sort of how they can become financially self-sufficient one day, perhaps, right? Which yeah. is to say, will they ever become um, dues-paying organizations, you know, truly dependent on dues-paying members the same way unions do? And I mean, this isn't just sort of an academic point, but I think, you know, her 
her concept of, of having a financially self-sufficient um, organization um, is, is simply that, you know, it, it, it changes um, the way you organize. It changes the way you interact yes. with each other yeah, as, as worker members, right? Um, compared to the way, uh, compared to an organization that is funded the way many worker centers are now funded, which is through philanthropic support, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, how does that change the dynamic between the leaders of an organization and the worker members, mm-hmm. between members themselves, yeah. um, between, you know, individual members and what they see as their organization, right? And, yes. and it, it, I, I imagine it, it probably does have an impact. I mean, worker centers by and large are not anywhere near the position of becoming financially self-sustaining like that, but it is worth thinking about as an ultimate objective. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, we should also note that the series at the prospect was funded by the Ford foundation. Uh, yeah. So, you know, big philanthropy. Right. And, and look, I mean, I have a chapter in my book about all of the problems with philanthropy and charity as, as a structure that props up the problems of capitalism, right? It is, it is hilarious to me to be writing a story on worker rights funded by the Ford Foundation, considering how much time I spend making fun of Henry Ford. Um, but the way that the, the way that unions have, well, there are many ways that unions have power, but one of them is that they are funded by and supported by the membership, right? That that's what that's where the money comes from. That's where the resources come from. That's where the strike funds come from. Um, and that should mean, doesn't always, there are a lot of, you know, issues around union democracy, certainly. But that is a, an incredibly important lever of power. And this is why right to work laws exist, right? Because they exist to try to deny unions that financial independence. Um, right. That's what a right to work law does, right? For our new listeners who maybe aren't familiar and, and think sort of right to work bans unions, what right to work does is give you the right to have all the protections that the union is legally obligated to give you if it represents your workplace without paying anything to it. So it's, again, it's an attempt to drain that support from an otherwise independent worker institution. Right. And so, yeah, so there have been experiments with dues and funding. And one thing that I'm really interested in and that I've got forthcoming stories on tech worker organizing, so I'm sure we'll talk about those in an upcoming episode of Belabored too. But um, the folks at coworker.org are now um, working on a solidarity fund for tech worker organizing that will be paid into sort of on a sliding scale by the well-off tech workers, essentially. Mm-hmm. But it is still going to be, it's still worker funded. It's just recognizing the fact that in tech, there are people who are still in a position of workers vis-a-vis their employers who nevertheless make six figures and can spare kicking in some money to a fund that can fund organizing among workers on the less well-paid end of the tech supply chain. And that's everyone from, you know, comment moderation to, um, you know, the gig workers of Mechanical Turk, right, who are making much, much less money. But that's another way to think about, like, how do we support these institutions as workers and as workers who are in solidarity with each other rather than as like, well, I'm a philanthropist and I give my donation to X, Y, Z every month. And like, you know, I am a, I am a working person who is now a dues paying member of the national writers union, the freelance solidarity project here, here. Um, But also, you know, I do make monthly donations to some organizations and those are, you know, little things that, that are steps towards making sure 
that organizations for and by the working class have funding that isn't dependent on grants from the ruling class. Yeah. Right now is where we should drop a plug for our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) You can also, in fact, support our working class organization by supporting us Um, at patreon.com. Yes, sure. Why not? Also, we should probably wrap up soon because we are at approaching an hour. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say like uh, one last thing on the, Dues. I mean, I think what you're talking about is is, a, is sort of akin to a mutual aid model, yes, which is exactly. kind of this idea that workers um, workers do best when they're helping one another, right? And 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 that is a way of achieving some kind of at least you know working class self sufficiency mm-hmm. that can um, that can maximize autonomy, at least autonomy from capitalist class um, uh, by, you know, by looking towards uh, not necessarily workers in your own workplace, but, you know, people who you're in class solidarity with. And I think, um, and I think that is um, one of the, you know, if there's one through line in the conversation you've had is that when people have class solidarity, um, employers get terrified. And I think Amazon, I mean, you know, despite, um, you know, despite the loss in Bessemer, I mean, Amazon for a good while was terrified. And yeah. I think that should be noted, you know, yeah. like it's no I mean, small feat. Trotting out all of those former Obama administration hacks that all these tech companies employ now um, to, you know, try to like guilt trip Mark Pokan on Twitter um, was kind of a lot, right? Um, yeah. And, and that I think, yeah. And, and so, right. As we wrap up our long conversation about Amazon and worker centers and different forms of organizing, the through line here, right. Is finding ways to actually build power um, that is sustainable and usable, right. That we have like levers to actually use that power that build towards a future where the workers at Amazon have more power over everything. I mean, Amazon wants to be the company that uh, it wants to build, you know, a corporate hegemony. And Amazon and wants to be the thing, matrix at this point. Yes, um, so. And so, and, and, you know, what better way to counter that than workers asserting that they have, you know, that, that they, that they're human, that they have their own dignity, that they want autonomy from this gigantic hegemonic force that's looming over everyone. So, um, Oh, and there's my cat. (laughs) That's our cute cat. Oh my God, your cat is so loud. Yes. Anyway, I think that that last thing you said before your cat started squalling was a great place to end. So um, yeah, so we will put links to our articles, the other articles in the series, various other reporting we've done on worker centers and a bunch of articles about Bessemer in the links at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And yes, as we said, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. Keep the working class self-funded. Oh my God, <laughs> so my cat. Holy <laughs> my cat is extremely excited about labor solidarity right now. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. We will put links to our pieces and more up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. 
this past couple of weeks, it feels like I've seen a million people sharing pictures of these little passive aggressive notices that have been posted at various fast food joints and restaurants that all share one common theme. No one wants to work here anymore. People are complaining that decent unemployment benefits, re-extended by the federal government after a lapse from the Trump days, mean that workers don't have to take unsafe, crappy jobs in order to survive. We here at Belabored, of course, think that's a good thing. But of course, economists hand-ring about labor market distortions, and business owners complain that you just can't get good help for minimum wage anymore. So the piece I chose to talk about all of this is called Jobs Are Returning to New York's Restaurants, Will Workers, by Chris Crowley at Grub Street. And it looks at the realities of restaurant work and why people might not be eager to rush back into the service sector when the virus is still rampant. Crowley writes, quote, in February, according to the latest data available from the state, there were 49% fewer jobs than the year before. That seems to be changing, but now the people in charge of hiring face a new problem. There aren't enough workers eager to fill the available jobs, end quote. He continues, quote, New York's bar and restaurant owners say that the national hiring crisis is compounded in the city, where an exodus of hospitality workers during the pandemic has led to what they say is an unprecedented talent shortage. Adding to that, the city's immigrant population, which makes up the majority of restaurant labor, according to the state comptroller, has decreased substantially in the past five years, and the city's overall population fell by 126,355 in the months following the arrival of COVID-19 in New York. And still other business owners say that they have former employees who've simply exited the industry to, for example, get a graduate degree, go to mortician school, or focus on their primary careers like dancing, end quote. But, Crowley notes, it's not all fun and dancing. Quote, the pandemic amplified the many extant problems in the business model for bars and restaurants, and the past year only served to heighten the emotional and physical toll that's often inflicted on workers. One bar employee, Derek Nielsen, summed it up simply when asked what conversations he's having with friends who's left, who've left the industry. All the good parts about service are gone. The dynamic just got really intense, end quote. Some restaurants, Crowley writes, are in fact doing what Econ 101 says businesses are supposed to do when they can't get enough workers, raising wages. Others, of course, are posting whiny notes, complaining that the government won't guarantee them a permanent desperate workforce willing to risk their lives and health for $10 an hour, which is New York City's tipped minimum wage. As one employer astutely noted to Crowley, quote, the issue isn't that people are being paid more for unemployment. The issue is that they're not being paid enough for their jobs, end quote. And as a former restaurant and bar worker myself for quite a few years, I can relate to the employees who have taken this opportunity to reevaluate more than just their wages, but the often toxic culture of the service industry broadly. One bar worker who left the industry for a desk job told Crowley, Quote, now he has a stable schedule and benefits that he never got before, like paid time off, and is unsure if he'll return to hospitality work. This thing servers and bartenders have to do, it's not an easy job, he says. I really loved my job, but some perspective helped me see how unhealthy it might have been in a lot of ways, and also how addictive it was. Another worker, a cook, adds, quote, It's something I have been thinking about. I've been wanting to get away from this really toxic kitchen culture, but how do I do that? 
before the pandemic, leaving seemed impossible. I wasn't really making that much money as a line cook, she says. So how could I get away from that when I don't really have that much money to begin with? End quote. And so Crowley concludes, restaurant workers are exercising other options and bosses will have to deal. Quote, if operators want to attract talented labor back to work, the onus is now on them to make the jobs more attractive. According to one report from last February, the average U.S. worker can no longer afford a family of four on a year's salary. Many restaurant workers feel the squeeze of income inequality, which the pandemic exacerbated, and find themselves impoverished or unable to afford to live in places like New York. The recent hiring struggle makes it clear that for the workers who left the city or left the industry, returning to the way things were simply isn't an option any longer. End quote. End piece. My pick for ARG is The Movement to End At-Will Employment is Getting Serious by Jeff Shirky in In These Times. Have you ever been fired? If so, were you ever told why? Or did your boss just tell you that you weren't needed anymore? Or maybe they yelled at you in a sudden fit of rage and told you to never come back? Or maybe you got kicked out of work for handing out flyers for a union campaign, but they didn't have to tell you that when they terminated you. If you've ever been arbitrarily fired, you are intimately familiar with a special feature of American labor law known as at-will employment. It means that your boss can fire you on a whim and doesn't have to link it to your job performance. Basically, it doesn't have to answer to anything. As Shirky writes, quote, in the United States, the at-will doctrine allows bosses to arbitrarily fire employees for any reason or no reason whatsoever, with the burden of proving it was an unlawful dismissal placed on the worker, unquote. In other words... If you think your employer is being discriminatory or acting in retaliation or otherwise not following the law, well, that's your problem. Good luck in court. But in Illinois, there is a coalition emerging to establish through legislation just cause protections for all U.S. workers. Just cause means that your boss would have to give a legitimate reason connected to your job performance if they wanted to fire you. This would end the catch-22 of at-will employment which experts say has caused whistleblowers and worker organizers to be unlawfully fired for speaking up and trying to defend the rights of their fellow workers. Shirky writes, quote, among other measures, the Secure Jobs Act would lay out valid reasons for termination, grant workers a fair chance to improve their job performance before being fired, prohibit, quote unquote, constructive discharge where employers pressure workers into resigning by creating a hostile work environment, outlaw, quote unquote, do not hire lists, a practice prevalent in the temp industry, and allow workers to accrue severance pay that employers would have to disperse upon termination. In other words, it makes it harder for bosses to fire workers and helps ensure that terminations that do occur are legally justified. A new study on workers in Illinois indicates that when there is no just cause protection for workers, there is ample opportunity to be fired for unjust causes. The study revealed that about quote, 37% of Illinois workers have been fired for an unfair reason and 42% have been terminated for no reason at all, with Black and Latino workers the most likely to be fired. A third of those who faced unfair discharge say it was over raising concerns about problems on the job, unquote. See a pattern here? Bad working conditions, workers speak up, get fired in retaliation, and the boss has even more free reign to lower working standards further. And so the cycle continues. So legislation is necessary for the state to put an end to this practice because the boss simply has no incentive 
to make it harder for them to exercise the power to terminate anybody who's standing in the way of the company's profits. Sharkey quoted one Chicago worker, Estrella Hernandez, reflecting on how it feels to be sacked for apparently no reason. She said, quote, it's like we're disposable to them. I got to work one morning at 4 a.m. and the supervisor told me I couldn't be there, that they had just let me go the day before. I asked the reason and they said they didn't have to tell me and told me to just go home, unquote. Currently, just cause provisions do exist in some union labor contracts. It's something that unions secure through collective bargaining. But Sean Richman, a friend of the podcast and a former union organizer, pointed out that this two-tier system in which a tiny portion of workers, the unionized ones, enjoy a modicum of due process and accountability if they're ever fired, and the vast, vast majority of workers are subject every day to arbitrary termination. Richmond added, quote, the American labor movement has this weird total exception to the rule that we base this right in collective bargaining. It's time to get over that. This really should just be the law. It sucks up so much time in collective bargaining. Also, workers know they will be fired for organizing a union. Let's make it a law that you can't be fired unless it's for a good reason, and then we'll get more unions. The bill in Illinois is not the first of its kind. Montana is the only state with such a law currently on the books. It passed way back in the 1980s. New York City just passed a unique law extending just cause protection to the city's fast food workers. So a boss will have to give a legitimate reason for any firing, and workers can demand an explanation. The law also builds in a series of incremental disciplinary steps before full-fledged termination is allowed. Overall, this is designed to counter one of the most notorious features of the fast food industry. You can get canned randomly at any minute on the boss's whim because they can easily hire some other low-wage worker to replace you that same day. The bill was signed into law in February, and labor advocates across the country have been looking into the possibility of importing the New York City model into their communities, including Illinois, Seattle, and California. The fight for just cause protections isn't simply about making it hard for workers to be fired. It's about enhancing the social contract between the worker and the boss and the worker and the economy as a whole. When bosses know that they can't just fire you whenever and for whatever they want and get away with it, that chips away at the inherently exploitative asymmetrical power dynamic that pervades so many workplaces, preventing workers from taking action to defend their rights and improve labor conditions. Once that knot of fear is loosened, People are more willing to take the calculated risk of speaking up, organizing, trying to make their workplace more decent and humane. With just cause protections, the law, which was previously wielded by bosses to ruin people's lives in the name of profit, would now be on the workers' side, ensuring that the workers who speak up can stick around long enough to enjoy the improved conditions that they helped create. And that is it for this episode of Belabored. Remember to go to our website at DescentMagazine.org to check out our archived episodes. And you can also support Descent and this podcast by subscribing. You can also become a sustaining member of this podcast by supporting us on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash belabored. And there you can also find exclusive content just for our Patreon supporters. And finally, we want to hear from you. Looking to find some sort of government relief? If you're a nurse on strike, or if you just got fired without any explanation, or if you're a worker at any Amazon warehouse thinking about the next steps after Bessemer, we want to hear from you. You can get us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Stay safe and over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.